Today, in our series, Asking for a Friend, we're talking about the LGBTQ conversation. The question that came in from you guys was how, as a Christian, do we engage this topic and show love to people who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, And this is the topic for some of you you've been nervous about. Uh, And for good reason. You have friends who you don't want to offend. You have people that you love. If I'm honest, this is the topic that uh, I've been nervous about because I don't want to get it wrong uh, because I have friends and I have people that uh, I care about as well because this topic has so, so many interpersonal stories connected to it. Just by show of hands, how many of you know someone, you have a friend or have a family member who identifies as LGBTQ+. Yeah, it's well over half the room, might even be three quarters of the room. Three out of four people in here know someone, have a family member, has a friend that identifies as LGBTQ. So my friend Lori, who we went to college together, I didn't know this at that time, but since then I've, I've learned her story. She tells her story that in 2008, she finally came to the point where she, was, uh, she had enough. She didn't want to fake it anymore. So she was either going to come out as a lesbian atheist or she was going to kill herself. And in her mind, those were the only two options, because in her mind, to be Christian was to be straight. So she thought in that moment, her only option was to abandon faith and embrace her attraction to the same sex, or to kill herself. Thankfully, she did not kill herself, and thankfully, she found a third way. And she has a ministry now called Impossible Ministries. She wrote a book called The Impossible Marriage. She's married to a dude, has three kids, and uh, speaks and consults churches and people on how to have this conversation. But too many stories don't end like that. Too many stories end with people killing themselves because they feel trapped and because they've been ostracized by friends' responses, family responses, and unfortunately, how the church has responded to their coming out as same-sex attracted. And so above any policy or position today as a church, we are all about people. God loves people, and so we love people. We try to love people the way God loves people, but so often we fail. So often we don't get it right. And so right off the bat, I wanted to state that God is never against anybody. I wanted to let that sink in. God is never against anyone. He made each human. We bear the image of our creator. He loves each and every person. And so I want to continue like we've continued this whole series talking about theological starting points. And so like everything, like we've talked about politics, last week was world religions. We've talked about a few different topics in this series. And every, every week we've started with, here's what we believe. Here's what the Bible teaches that we believe the Bible teaches that will shape our conversation. And so the first theological starting point today is God loves everyone. God loves everyone. Romans 5.8 makes it very clear, while you and I were still in our sin, Christ died for us. John 3.16 is a verse that we could all probably quote. God loved the whole world that he gave his son. He wasn't selective. Genesis 1 and 2, we bear God's image as humans. 
We were the only thing created that bear God's image. Psalm 139 makes it very clear. God, God makes people on purpose. So that is the first theological starting point today. God loves everybody. The second theological starting point is this. God had and still has original intentions when it comes to sex in marriage. God had it in Genesis 1 and 2, his original design, and he still has the way, the best way, his original design. Genesis 1 2, we see in the creation narrative God's plan for male, female, and marriage. The creation story, if you read and study the creation story, it is a list of mostly opposites that complement each other. You have land, you have sea, you have night, you have day, and it culminates with male and female. Opposites meant to complement each other and work together. The word used for Eve, when God created Eve as a suitable helper for Adam, that Hebrew word suitable, I stole this from our good friend, Reverend Rick Barry, who leads our middle school because he's really smart. Um, the, the Greek word for that word suitable is really two words smashed together, meaning equal, like they were meant to be equal partners, but it also has a word that means different. They are vastly different from one another. So that word that God used to, de to define Eve meant equal but different. This whole idea of male slash female. And that really started marriage. That, that really was the picture of marriage because they were to come together in union, have sex and multiply and have kids to fill the earth. And so marriage really was this, uh, this union of two sex different people, individuals coming together in union and sexual behavior was reserved for this union. Uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus reiterates this. He talks about how the male and the female, they come together in union. They leave their father and mother, they come together. He didn't say, well, it, you know, that's just in the Old Testament. He reiterates that God still has this plan for sex and marriage. So that's our number two theological starting point. Number three is our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. Let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 together. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought as a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to Christians. So let's not expand this to those who don't have the Holy Spirit inside them when they become Jesus followers. But he's talking to Christians like, hey, hey, your body and the, de the decisions you make with your body, it's not a one-off thing. It's a spiritual decision. It's a spiritual decision. And the last theological statement I added late in the game, so um, I didn't have a chance to make a slide or Chelsea to have a slide. But the last the uh, theological statement is simply that temptation is not equal to sin. Temptation is not a sin. James 1 is very clear that temptation can lead to sin, but the temptation itself is not sin. Otherwise, Jesus would have sinned because Jesus was tempted. And so temptation itself is not a sin. 
I say those things and already some of you have kind of checked out because I didn't say exactly what you wanted to hear. I didn't say exactly what you thought I should have said. But I want to beg you, if that's you, if you've already checked out and you're like, well, whatever, tune back in. I promise, tune back in. Uh, so having those theological starting points as a framework, I, I, I want to talk about the word gay because this, this question came into me and it was like, hey, can you be a Christian and be gay? It's a big question. Maybe some of you are wondering that question for a friend and you're like, hey, can, can, they, can they even come to church? Is it even worth it to invite them to church? Well, it depends on how you define the word gay because gay in and of itself well, gay, the word, has a lot of things attached to it. And I, I will admit, as a kid, I used it in jokes. I was naive and hurtful. And I've since learned, and hopefully I'm more careful. But at its basic form, it means that a person is attracted to the same sex. Same sex attracted, like my friend Lori. She's naturally, she is attracted to girls. It's what comes up when she has a desire to connect with someone um, intimately. It's, it's for girls, for her. And so that, that attraction, that I would say that's, that, that person is gay. So with that definition, that attraction definition, I would say, can a Christian be gay? Can a Jesus follower, yes. Can a Jesus follower be gay? Yeah, absolutely. It's like if I said, can I struggle with porn and be gay? Of course, yeah. Now, the, now it, the conversation becomes a little bit more complicated when I don't give up my struggle with porn and I just give in and in and I just you know, say whatever, it's lost. Then the conversation is different. But can a Christian be gay? Of course. Now, a lot of people use the word gay to say that they actually mean same-sex behavior. See, the word gay has a lot of connotations to it, a lot of things attached to it. And because we believe that God has an original design for sex and marriage, we also believe that anything outside of that original design would be a sin, a, a turning away from God's good plan. So in this talk, when I talk about being gay, I'm talking about being attracted, same-sex attraction. I'm not talking about the behavior. But one thing we have to know and we have to remember when we're talking about this topic is we're talking about people. We're not talking about issues. We're not talking about things. We're talking about people. And people have stories and people have emotions and people carry pain and people fall short and people need support. A Christian Jesus follower named Carlos Whitaker He's a speaker, author, pastor. He, he has a phrase that I like. It, it, it says this, don't stand on issues, walk with people. Don't stand on issues, walk with people. And if you look at that and you kind of have this internal tension, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about the truth? What about those issues that are true? You can't, you can't disregard truth. And I get it. Truth really, really matters. Jesus is truth. He spoke truth. He loved with truth. So the question becomes, how did Jesus walk with people? Because we don't stand on issues, we walk with people. How did Jesus walk with people? Did he abandon truth in order to love people, in order to show grace? I don't think he did. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to read about a woman who was caught in the, uh, sin, caught in the act of adultery. And you may have heard this account before, but I want to read it with fresh eyes today. So if you will, listen to this and read it on the screen with eyes that perhaps you've never seen this passage before. Try to look at it uh, uh, fresh. So let's read John 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. This was Jesus. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Nothing like that to interrupt your church service. He was teaching in the temple and they brought in this woman. I don't know if she was literally caught in the act of adultery, like literally having sex and they pulled her from the bed saying, you're coming with me, you're about to die today. Or if they had her in custody, we don't know, we don't know that. They may have caught her a week before, but just waiting for the right moment to catch Jesus and say, this woman is a sinner. So the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. How humiliating. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So this, this whole thing has just, you know, ickiness written all over it. And that is a Hebrew word, ickiness. So you can write that down. <laughs> but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I want you to note something. Jesus saved this woman's life. The sinner. Jesus saved this woman's life. He stood in between the rock throwers and the woman. He wrote on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So not, not only did he save her life with no mention, no mention of her sin just yet, he saved her life, no mention of sin. Now he's, he, he's pointing the finger at the accusers, at the hypocrites. Still no mention of her sin. Her adultery has not come up yet from Jesus. So he saves your life, points his finger at the accusers. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away. You know this, you've, you've, you know, you grew up, if you grew up in church, you know this. The older ones for, uh, first, they drop their rocks. You know, they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't, you know, I you know, yelled at my wife this morning, I guess I got to go. You know, you know, the, whatever sin they were thinking of in their brains, they left until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither I condemn you. Sorry, neither do I condemn you. Time out. So he saves her life no mention of sin, points his finger at the accusers, the hypocrites, who like, you know, for some reason thought this sin was worthy of stoning, but all the other sins that they had committed were not important. They didn't want to bring up their sins. This sin was worth killing for. He pointed at the accusers, still no mention of adultery. And then he takes away her condemnation, still no mention of her sin. 
he, he took away the condemnation that was rightfully hers. Get that. She deserved, according to the law, she deserved to die. She, she was a sinner. But what all those guys didn't realize was so did they. They were sinners too. They deserved to die as well. See, Jesus takes away the condemnation for every single one of us. How can he do that? How can he take away her condemnation? Well, it's because he does that for every single one of us. On the cross, in our place, he took on the condemnation that was rightfully ours. We deserved it, and Jesus took it away. And again, at this point of the story, still no mention of her sin. He's saved her life. He calls out the accusers, takes away her condemnation, without any mention of sin. Then the last thing he does was bring up her sin. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus saved her life, pointed his fingers at her accusers, took away her condemnation, and the last thing he brought up was the fact that she had sinned. This is brilliant. This is how we should live. Luke 19 is another illustration of how we should live. Luke 19, I'm not gonna read it, but you might know the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Zacchaeus was a hated man, marginalized in society, unredeemable in the Jewish world, because he was a tax, he collected taxes for the Roman government, and he had turned his back on his people. And Jesus calls him out, not for the sin he was committing. He was extorting people, stealing money. He was a bad man. He, he was not a good guy. And Jesus asked him to go to his house. And in the scriptures, we don't have any record of him bringing up his sin. What we have record of is him totally turning his life around and saying, Jesus, I am going to give all the money I stole back. I'm going to make everything right. I can't believe this is happening, and salvation came to that house. We don't have any record of Jesus sitting down and saying, all right, here's the list of the things that you gotta get right before uh, we do this whole salvation thing. Yeah, uh, that's not coming until you get this right. No, we have no record of that. What we have record of is salvation coming to that house because Jesus had dinner with him and his family. So what do these stories show us? What did Jesus do when he was confronted with someone who falls short of God's standards? Did, did he pull out the list? Did he bring up their sin first? No. What did he do? He moved close. He leaned in. He showed grace. He showed acceptance. Now, I, I, I want to be careful. The acceptance Jesus showed was not affirmation of their behavior. When he moved towards the woman sleeping around, he wasn't saying adultery was okay. When he had dinner with Zacchaeus, he wasn't saying extortion and stealing was okay. But what Jesus was saying was that the behavior modification was secondary to them needing to be loved. Be behavior modification was second to them needing to be loved. Let that sink in. Here's the other dynamic. Jesus was not worried about what other people thought of him. Having dinner with Zacchaeus was seen by others as full affirmation of Zacchaeus' lifestyle. Having dinner with someone was shaking hands and saying, high five, man, we're together in this. That wasn't the case. 
Jesus didn't affirm what Zacchaeus was doing, but he was willing to let people talk about him behind his back in order to show Zacchaeus that not everyone hated him. Not everyone avoided him. In fact, the only person that mattered, God himself, was choosing to be in relationship with him before any decision to obey. The decision to obey came later. In fact, this phrase rocks my world every time. Acceptance came before obedience. You read the story of John 8, Luke 19, and almost every other interaction Jesus had, acceptance came before obedience. If I could have another vulnerable moment with you, I would prefer, if I was in charge, I would prefer obedience comes first. That's how I'm wired. I'm working on it. Don't judge me. I would prefer obedience than acceptance. I'd rather have you follow the way of Jesus before you begin a relationship with Jesus. Thankfully, I'm not in charge. Because when it came to Jesus, you belonged before you believed. When it came to Jesus, you belonged before you believed. Think about it. The disciples, they got the invitation to follow Jesus. The fo- follow me was the invitation long before they knew what Jesus was about. And they didn't really believe him until after his resurrection. They'd learn everything later. They belonged before they believed. We, we talked about the woman caught in adultery. We talked about Zacchaeus. We, what about the leper who, who Jesus was not afraid to touch? What about the woman at the well who Jesus was not afraid to have a conversation with? What about the centurion soldier whose faith impressed Jesus? One of the only times Jesus was impressed by someone's faith was with someone who was outside of the church in that day. People belonged long before they believed. He moved towards these people who didn't believe him at first. And once they encountered him, everything changed. He invited people to belong in his presence before they agreed with him on everything. And that's the same with us, right? Romans 5.8, I'll repeat this again. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Jesus doesn't throw truth out the window. We've already seen that. I mean, last week, we, we made the claim, and G- Jesus makes the claim that, you know, he's the only way to God. He's saying, I am the ultimate truth. He was truth in human form. Yet, he knew that in order for truth to flourish, love and grace needed to be present. I love this quote. We're reading a book as a team called Grace and Truth. And this quote is awesome by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. It says this, our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Because the greatest apologetic for truth is love. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. That's the kind of youth group we need to be. Not when people walk in the door, we present them with a set of rules that, hey, if you're not following these, you can't come in. Because if that was true, this room would be empty. The stage would be empty. No, we need to have people feel the grace of Jesus through us giving them grace. So how, how should all of this inform how we engage with someone who is same-sex attracted? How should all of this inform how we engage with someone who identifies as a different gender or is questioning everything? 
How do we engage with someone? I borrowed a lot of these uh, points I'm, ab- I'm about to give you from the book that we're reading, um, but I think it's a way forward for us. The first one, remember we're talking about people. These aren't issues. These are people, and God loves them. God made them. Just like he made you, just like he made me. Remember we're talking about people. Listen, learn, then listen again. Listen, learn, listen again. I told you about my friend Lori. Uh, she runs a ministry now, and she's a part of a church out in Grand Rapids. And there was, um, there was a person struggling with her gender, and she was considering becoming trans. She went to a counselor. Her name, uh, so the, the girl's name is Kat. Kat went to a counselor and was just questioning a lot of things. And the counselor was secular, was like, okay, well, we just need to get you on hormone drugs, and we need to start this transition process. And in that moment, Kat tells the story that she felt a little unloved, like unheard, that the counselor just really just went to the quick fix. The counselor really didn't work on what was going on inside. And it's hard to understand what's going on inside. That's why she went to a counselor in the first place. So she's trying to figure all this out. She grew up in church, so she decided to just go back to church. And God met her at church, and she kept going back to this one church. That Well, this church was the church Lori went to. So Lori uh, just, did, you know, she sees Kat coming alone, so Lori just comes up to her and says, hey, I see you coming to church alone. Um, you're welcome to sit with my family if you want. Uh, and Kat's like, Okay. And they begin a conversation, and Lori eventually opens up to say, hey, I I struggle with same-sex attraction. That's my husband. That's my three kids. Um, Like, let's talk. And it got to the point in many conversations where Kat told Lori, I'm sick of everyone telling me about my gender and who I am. What does God say? And Lori's response has rocked my world ever since. Her response was, you know, I'm not quite sure, but let's read the scriptures together. I'm not quite sure. Let's read the scriptures together. Listen, learn, listen. We need to be people that even though we have truth, we need to be people that have theological humility. That we don't use our truth to beat people over the head. We don't use our truth as a weapon. We don't use our truth to exclude people. We use our truth as a foundation to show love and to have conversations and to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I struggle with sins just like you're struggling. I, I, let's find out together. And for Kat, it was revolutionary. She had never met someone with such humility. Even though Lori knows the truth, even though Lori wrote a book about truth, she responded with humility. So listen, learn, listen. Listen to people's stories. Have them process. Uh, number three, don't be a hypocrite. Now, I say don't be a hypocrite. I feel like every Christian walking on planet Earth is a hypocrite. But what I I want you to reference back to John 8 is the people with rocks in their hands ready to throw the stone at the woman who sinned. Don't be that person. Don't be the rock thrower. Be the grace giver. Don't be the rock thrower. Don't be the person who, yeah, you have your sin, but when you encounter someone who has another sin, a sin that you don't deal with, you're like... (laughs) Oh, they, they need to get their act together. Wow, they're a mess. 
No, no, don't be that person. Realize your own sin. Matthew 7, look at the plank in your eye before you get the speck of dust out of someone else's eye. Don't be a hypocrite. And then number four, the last one is be a safe person. Be a safe person. I was not a safe person in middle school and some of high school. I grew up a little bit in high school. Middle school, I told bad jokes. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. A safe person means you exude kindness. You don't tell those kinds of crude or you know, jokes with gay in them. You embody the radical grace of Jesus. Meaning if someone shares their struggle with you, if someone shares that they've been processing some of these things, then you value them, you thank them for sharing, and you remind them that they're loved, that they're made in the image of God. And you find ways to walk with them instead of walking away from them. And then if you, if you find yourself struggling with same-sex attraction or questioning your sexuality or who you are attracted to or your gender, I have a few tips for you. Number one, Know your worth and your value. I was talking to Lori, my friend, about this, this message. I sent her an email and said, hey, just look this over. Just g- give me any points of feedback. And she's like, hey, that word no right there, know your worth and value, that, 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 it's a really big conversation because people who struggle with same-sex attraction, they don't, like, they don't know because people tell them all day long that they're, they're, they're not worth anything especially from the church. And so it's a process to to get rid of shame in order to know your worth and value. So I wanted to say that in case that's you and you have same-sex attraction and you're trying to figure that out. We'll do our best as a community to make sure you know that you're loved and you're valuable and God loves you, he made you. Number two, find the safe person. It could be your life group leader, it could be a parent, it could be someone who you trust but find a safe person, and just the last one is share your story. Share your story. When you're ready, share your story. I know that story probably has some pain in it, some rejection, and some hurt feelings along the way, but once you find a person that you feel safe with, share your story. I also, um, Lori also said, hey, make sure you give a little bit of a picture of what a safe person is. And I did, I think, a little bit, but I wanna say this too. A safe person doesn't freak out over sin, over the big sins. For example, like if you hear a pastor has an affair and you're like, oh my gosh, oh, well, that's it for him. See ya, evil. Well then that's, you know, someone's probably not gonna share their same-sex attraction with you. If you react that way toward an affair, no one's gonna share the safe thing with you. But if you react to the big sins with grace and humility, and grief over the sin, then, then potentially someone will see that and someone will be like, I, I think I could share with them my same-sex attraction struggle that I'm dealing with right now. So, know your worth and value, find the safe person and share your story. That's all I got. So let's pray. Um, I have a, f- a couple reminders and announcements at the end, um, but I hope you have good conversation in life group. I hope you're not wa- walking in um, maybe shy to talk about this or um, with blank faces. I just hope you engage with how we are to respond uh, as Christians to, to this conversation. So let's pray. God, thanks for your word. 
Jesus, thank you for the example that you set for us. I just pray that we'll inch closer and closer to who you want us to be, God. People filled with love and grace. Not denying truth or putting that aside, but, but loving and, and showing kindness and grace first because that's, that's what you did. And I pray that in your name, amen.